Okay, good morning, Hellos Church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jeff, and it's always my pleasure and my privilege to uh, serve as one of your pastors and to be with you in this way as we open our Bibles together and we continue this journey through uh, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24 is where we'll be uh, spending our time today, the passage our friend Emily just read for us. And so uh, let's go ahead and dive right in. We're going to actually get real practical uh, for the next couple of weeks. And the reason why we're going to get practical is because... um, The Apostle Paul gets real practical in this part of his letter to the Christians uh, in the churches at Ephesus. Paul is going to be tackling a topic both this week and next that I know is very uh, personal to you. It's a topic that if I had to guess, I would say is also very timely for you too in your life. I know it is for me. What Paul is going to be talking about today and what we're going to be talking about too is change, personal change. Life change. Paul starts talking about this, and he started talking about this in last week's passage, didn't he? How you and I as Christians, we should not be uh, standing still, spiritually speaking. The Christian life is not static or stagnant. No, the Christian life should be active and dynamic. We should be moving and growing. We should be maturing together as followers of Jesus in the church and as the church. But quite often, for many of us, that's far easier said than done. At some level, we all want to change and we all need to change. And yet, at every turn, it seems most of us, we struggle to change. Think about how many people spend their days, they spend uh, their careers, they spend their lives trying to help people change. Think of all the educational workers, all the counselors, all the social workers, all the psychologists. What are they setting out to do? They want to help people change, right? They want to help people uh, change their perspectives and change their priorities. They want to help people change how they're thinking and how they're uh, living. And all of us have areas in our lives, don't we, that we need to change, areas that we struggle to get control of and to keep control of. Some of us struggle keeping control of our emotions. We get angry, we get bitter, we get defensive, we get impatient. Some of us struggle controlling our tongues. We're always saying too much, or we're always saying too little. Many people have many problems when it comes to money. Some of us are too uptight about money and we spend too little. Others of us don't worry enough about money and we spend too much. Some of us struggle with fear, fear of certain kinds of situations, fear of certain kinds of people, fear of the future. Some of us don't keep our promises. Some of us are unwilling even to make them. Some people struggle with certain addictions and compulsions. We're addicted to food. We're addicted to substances. We're addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to our screens Some of us don't make good use of our time. Some of us are never on time. Many of us work too hard. Others of us don't work hard enough. And most all of us, most all of us are most certainly hypocritical, aren't we? The things that we say in our lives don't always measure up so well with the things that we do. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I struggle with this one greatly as I get up here to to teach you the Bible as, as faithfully as I can. I get up here at times telling you who you need to be as a Christian, all the while knowing full well how far I fall short again and again of who I could be 
and who I should be as a Christian, as a husband, and as a friend. Paul is going to challenge us today to uh, examine ourselves, to, to examine our hearts and our lives, and to ask ourselves as Christians, how am I changing? How am I growing? Am I growing? Am I any different than I used to be? And am I any different than the world and the culture around me? On the one hand, Paul is going to challenge us today here to, uh, and next week too, really, to live an examined life as Christians. He's going to remind us that we need to be paying attention to our lives. We need to be paying, uh, we need to be aware of what parts of our lives need attention. But he's going to go a step further too. He's going to, he's going to tell us how to get there. Paul is going to give us a pretty remarkable explanation in the remainder of Ephesians chapter 4 on how, how to change and what that change should look like and who that change should look like because, friends, as we'll see, it should look like Jesus. But just to be clear, on the front end here, Paul would not say that any of this is easy. He would not say that any of this is automatic. If it was, he wouldn't be writing these words uh, to the Christians in Ephesus, but he is. And he's saying to them, and he's saying to us too, you need this. He looks you in the eye and he says, you need this. You have the resources to change. You have the power to change. And he says, I'm going to tell you how to get there. It's a pretty audacious claim, really. Paul says this, and, and Christianity says this with a straight face, backed by thousands of years of experience and millions of testimonies. You can change. In fact, there is no other worldview, no other set of beliefs, no other religion that has been, uh, seen more lives changed than the number of lives changed by Jesus. Three points I hope to draw out of this passage about change. First, in verses 17 to 19, Paul is going to remind us that a life apart from Christ is a life of futility, a life of futility apart from Christ Paul says you can change and I can help you get there, but before you get there, if, if you're ever to get there, he says it's critical that you never lose sight of who you were and where you came from before you met Jesus. Otherwise, he says, you may find yourself back where you started and you won't be changing at all. And so what Paul does here first as we look at this passage is he, he reminds the Ephesians of who they were before Jesus and he cautions the Ephesians about about how they were living. Now remember, leading up to this uh, passage here, immediately before this, Paul was uh, telling the Ephesians last week, he was telling them, you need, to, uh, you need to be growing up. He said, don't be like spiritual children. You need to be maturing. You need to be growing. That's what Paul just got done saying, leading into verses 17 to 19. And look at, look at verse 17 with me. Paul says, therefore... He says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. Stop living as the Gentiles live, he says, in the futility of their thoughts. Paul is saying to them, if you want to grow and change, you can no longer think and live like the Gentiles uh, think and live. Now, it's very important for you to know here that the people Paul was writing to, they were Gentiles. The Ephesians, they were Gentiles before they were Christians. They were Gentiles who had heard about Jesus, who had uh, trusted Jesus, and who had become Christians. But they were, they were Gentiles first. 
And what this tells us, I think, is that the reason Paul says to them you should no longer think and live like the Gentiles in Ephesus is because uh, that's exactly what they were doing. Now, Ephesus was a leading city at the time. It was an affluent city. It was a very progressive city. It was at the cutting edge, in fact, of uh, commerce and culture and scholarship, too. In fact, one commentator said it was second only to Rome in its commercial and cultural influence in that region at that time. And so it was a city leading the way in many of these areas, but it was also a city that was leading the way in hedonism and debauchery and sexual immorality, too. One historian ranked Ephesus as the most lewd and lascivious cities, one of the most depraved and degenerate cities of Asia Minor at the time. And if we're listening carefully to Paul's words here, the Christians in Ephesus were apparently not living or looking any differently than the culture around them, which means that they were not growing and they were not changing and they were not maturing. They were not leading an examined life. And Paul is calling them out here because of it. And it's a good question, I think, to ask ourselves today, here today too, perhaps, in what ways are you and I looking and living and thinking differently than the culture around us as a result of knowing Jesus? Are you any different? How are you any different? Are you paying attention? That word futility in verse 17, it means emptiness. It means pointlessness. It means vanity. It gives the idea of doing a lot of things without really uh, getting anywhere, right? Without really making any progress. The Greek word, in fact, for futility there, it's translated uh, as vanity over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the very theme of that book of the Bible, in fact. Throughout that book, King Solomon described how he pursued money, he pursued knowledge, he pursued women and power and pleasure with a continuing desire for more and more of those things, just like it says in verse 19. But in the end, King Solomon found that every last bit of it became like grasping at air, empty, hollow, futile. Paul goes on in verses 18 and 19 to fill out this picture of the human heart apart from Jesus, and the picture isn't a pretty one. Paul is giving us here a very penetrating analysis, a, a diagnostic assessment of the darkness and the hardness and the bondage and the corruption and the futility of the human heart that isn't trusting Jesus. And why does he do this? What is, what is Paul doing here, considering the context? I think he's saying to the Ephesians, and he's saying to us, you need to remember who you were, and you need to remember where you came from. You need to recognize the, the root of your problems, or else you may find yourself returning to them. He says, guard your thought life carefully. Be careful what you're giving yourself to, or you may find yourself ensnared and enslaved, to, ensnared by it and enslaved to it. And although Paul is giving us a picture of unbelief in these verses, one of Paul's points, I think, is a cautionary one. It's that these appetites, they remain familiar to Christians. These tendencies are still lurking within you and I because of the sinful nature that, that remains in us. And so he's saying, be careful, be cautious, pay attention to how you're living, 
Paul cautions them about the life of futility apart from Christ, reminding them of who they were, but now he's going to talk about who they are now and who, who they are becoming in Christ. He's going to talk in verses 22 to 24 about a life of change being renewed by Christ. And we're going to see Paul dial in on three things here that he wants, I think, us to understand as the keys to changing and to growing as Christians. Three things we'll be unpacking in verses 22 to 24. Taking off the old, putting on the new, and renewing, or being renewed rather, in the mind. And as I hope to show you, one of these, uh, one of these things is not enough. Two of these things is not enough either. All three of these things need to be happening, Paul would say, if we are ever to find lasting heart change and lasting life change. Look at what Paul says there in verses 22 to 24. He says, you were taught by Jesus to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Now, Paul is saying something um, very unique here in the way that he's choosing his words and in the way that he's uh, using his words. It seems at first glance here, a lot like Paul is saying, you need to put off your uh, old behaviors and you need to, need to put on some uh, some new and improved behaviors. And on one level, he is saying that, and we are going to talk about that. But on another level, he's, he's thinking of something more than just behavior here. Paul is saying that if you're ever going to change and grow first and, and fundamentally, you need to understand something about who you are and about who you've become in Christ. Paul is using pretty unique language here. You see in the Greek language, people use these words. They use these uh, verbs uh, to take off and, and to put on these verbs. He, they were used most often back then to describe uh, taking off or putting on a piece of clothing like a coat or a covering. But nobody anywhere in that time and place ever used these Greek words like Paul is using these words here to talk about uh, taking off the old self, the old person, and putting on putting on the new self. As he often does, Paul is kind of pushing uh, the boundaries of the Greek language in his very uh, creative use of it. It's actually a pretty radical concept Paul is introducing here because uh, if you have the whole chapter in front of you, all of, all of chapter 4, by the time you get down to the end of this passage, by the time uh, you get into verses 25 and moving forward, from there, Paul suddenly starts talking about all sorts of very specific behaviors. He says, he says, don't lie. He says, don't resent. Don't steal. Work hard. Care for the poor and the needy. Next week, he's going to be exploring these things. He's going to be telling us more about these things, many things that we need to stop doing, many things we need to uh, start doing, but he doesn't lead with that. He doesn't, he doesn't start calling you toward any specific behaviors in verses 25 to 31 until he knows that you get, have a good handle on what he's saying here in verses 22 to 24. And in verses 22 to 24, his focus is not, not as much on doing as it is on being. His focus is not so much on our behavior as it is on our identity, on who we are as Christians. 
It's very interesting. Most all commentators agree based on the way that, that Paul is using his words here that these are not so much commands. They're not commands about what you and I are to do as much as they are declarations about what's already been done, declarations about who you and I have already become in Christ. And so to rephrase this same idea a bit more literally, it's a lot like Paul is saying uh, that the old self has already been taken off and the new self has already been put on. Past tense, it's, it's done. The same idea comes through from Paul in places like Romans chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul would say that our old self, that's the same word old self that's used in this passage, was crucified with Christ. Past tense. He doesn't say the old self is being crucified. He says it was crucified. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Paul doesn't say the old is passing away. He says the old has passed away. And he doesn't say the new is coming. He says that the new has come. Friends, thinking rightly about who we are and what's already been done uh, for us by Jesus in the gospel should foundationally and fundamentally be what compels us and what motivates us in the things we do and in the ways we live. Christianity is about being and becoming something new by grace through faith before it is ever about doing anything. It's about being made new first and then, then living new as a result. That's the order. As a Christian, you've been made new so that you might live new. And so let's talk about living new, living differently as Christians in light of what Paul is saying here. And if we're talking about behaviors and if we're talking about changing the ways we're living, then taking off, of course, means stopping certain things. And putting on means starting some other things. In perhaps the simplest of terms, taking off the old self means to uh, say no to sin. It means rejecting the old self and the futility of the world's ways of thinking and living. And if taking off means saying no to sin, then putting on means saying yes to God. It, it means putting on truth. It means believing what God says. It means applying the gospel to your heart again and again in every situation and in every circumstance. Do you know the word repentance literally means to turn? You turn away from something, right? You repent, but you can't, you can't turn away from something without turning toward something else. And in the same way, what I want us to consider is that as we think about change happening in our lives, at the same time we're taking off the old, we have to also be putting on the new. It's not one or the other, it's both. You're stopping certain things and you're starting other things. You're saying no to certain things and you need to be saying yes to others. Change requires both, according to Paul here. It sounds simple. It seems kind of obvious. Conceptually, it is. Intellectually, it is. But practically, it's not always, oh, not always easy to keep these two things together. 
In fact, my guess is that most all of us in this room have probably fallen into one side or the other at one uh, point or another. We tend to separate these things. We tend to separate taking off and, and putting on, often without even realizing it. Churches do it. Counselors do it. Cultures do it. And it creates all sorts of problems. For example, many churches put a very heavy emphasis on taking off the old self, don't they? Some churches put the emphasis very hard on the negative, on what you need to uh, stop doing. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't watch this TV show or that movie. Don't listen to this music or read that book. Don't associate with that sort of per person or, or uh, frequent those sorts of places. But here's the thing, you can't just put something off without putting something on in its place. It's like trying to clean up your yard that's full of weeds. You pull up all the weeds out of the ground, you rake it up, you till up the dirt real nice. What's going to happen there if, if you just leave it alone, if you don't plant anything there in its place? The weeds are going to return, it's inevitable. If you don't plant grass there, if you don't plant something there, you're going to get weeds and dandelions there, you won't be able to stop them. In a similar way, putting off without putting on doesn't make sense, and it also doesn't work. Now, to push this just a little bit further, what I want to tell you is that taking off without putting on is not only ineffective, it can actually make things worse. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells a strange little parable about a man who had a, had a demon. He had this he had this evil within him that was, that was driven out of him, but nothing was put in its place. Are you familiar with this story? It's a, it's a peculiar one. This evil spirit is driven out, but Jesus said it came back at a later time. And it found the house all swept up, all cleaned up, and even more ready for occupation than it was before. Nothing had moved in and taken its place. The man had taken off without, without putting on. And Jesus said this evil spirit, finding the house swept and in good order, it went and brought seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they settled into their new home. Jesus ends this parable with these words. He says, as a result of this, that person's last condition was worse than his first. And so what Jesus is saying is if you try to clean up your own act, if you try to white-knuckle your way through this, if you try to drive the sin and evil out of your life by, by willpower and by brute strength, without at the same time putting something in its place, putting truth in its place, putting the Holy Spirit in its place, it, does, it not only doesn't help, it may actually make things worse. And so you can't take off without putting on. It doesn't work. But in a similar way, you can't put on without taking off either. That turns out to be just as, as problematic. And you actually see this sort of approach, not only in the church, this is quite per pervasive in the culture around us too, if you think about it. There is a secular mode of thinking that puts all the emphasis on putting on with little to no emphasis on taking off. All the emphasis is on the positive, right? Just find yourself, discover yourself, follow your feelings, be the best version of you, gratify your needs, see yourself as a wonderful person, just do whatever is you. 
all the emphasis is on putting on, not, not no emphasis on taking off. Just put on the best you, right? But they would say, don't you dare tell me to take off anything. Don't tell me what to do or who to be or how to live. Don't tell me that I need to stop uh, doing anything. Don't tell me I need to deny or discipline anything. That's, that's ridiculous. That's offensive. All putting off, putting on rather, and no, no taking off. On the Christian side of things, there are some different versions of this too where the emphasis is very heavy on putting on, very light on taking off. Some churches these days don't like to call people to change anything about themselves. They're not really comfortable calling people to repent. They're unwilling to uh, call sin, sin. After all, it seems unloving. It sounds judgmental, doesn't it? It may hurt people's feelings. And so they talk a lot about the positive, God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, without talking about sin and judgment and wrath. All putting on, no taking off. And what can happen is if you're struggling with a problem or an area of sin in your life, they say, um, uh, don't sweat it, don't strive, don't, don't struggle, just give it to God, let Him deal with it. Let God take care of it for you. This is a sort of let go and let God approach. It sounds very spiritual, but when it comes to, to changing your behavior, what does it mean and, and how does it work? You say, I'm struggling with the temptation to view pornography, so I'm just going to give it to God. I'm going to let him have it. I'm going to let him deal with it. I'm not going to struggle against it. I'm not going to stress about it. And so what do you do then? You just wait for God to do something about it? And in the meantime, does that mean you just do whatever you want since God hasn't taken it away yet? The process of Christian growth and Christian change is exactly that. It's a process and it should feel like a battle because it is a battle, a battle that requires diligence and effort and fight. You can't simply sit back and wait for God to give you victory over the sin and the struggles in your life. Occasionally, he may do that. Occasionally, that does happen, but you should never expect that to be the norm or make that the only approach you take to, to change. For change to happen in our lives as Christians, we need to both take off the old and put on the new, but we need to do more than that too. As I said earlier, there's a third element, a third thing that Paul says has to happen here. Look at these verses again. In the middle, between taking off and putting on, verse 23, you have this bridge that kind of uh, gets you from one side to the other. It says, be renewed. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Paul says. Paul actually talks quite a lot in his writings about, about putting on truth and being renewed and uh, changed by it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. And how? How is this uh, inner person being renewed? Verse 18 says it's because we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
For what is seen is temporary, he says, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verse uh, two, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is talking about putting on truth and uh, filling your mind with truth about who God is, about who we are in the gospel and letting it, letting it renew you, letting it push out the lies and the deception of the world, of, the, of our flesh and of the devil. In many cases, change comes down to a battle of the mind, putting off lies and putting on the renewing truths of the scriptures. Why? So that we might break out of patterns of futile thinking and living. This is Paul's prescription for change. Take off the old, put on the new, and be, be renewed in your mind. And as you think carefully about what Paul is describing here, there's a, there's a pretty amazing balance in all this. There's an amazing synergy to it too. Think about this. It doesn't say let God take something off. It doesn't say let God put something on. It says you do that. You take off and, and you put on. On the other hand, it doesn't say renew yourself in the spirit of your mind, does it? Did you notice that? No, it says be renewed. Be renewed. Paul uses the passive tense there. And passive tense means it's not something you can do at all. It's something that's, it's something that's done to you. It's something you have to seek and ask God to do, to renew your mind as you take in truth and as you think it through. You fill the mind continually with truth about spiritual reality, about uh, eternal reality, about heavenly reality, and you humbly ask God by his spirit to make it real, to bring it alive, to cause it to, to catch fire in your heart. That's what's going to stir your heart and empower your life toward change. And do you see that because of the balance because of this balance in Paul's approach, you can never really say, I've got this, I can do this on my own because God has to renew your mind. You can't do that by yourself or to yourself. On the other hand, you can't say, I'm gonna let God do it all. I'm waiting for God to change me. Go ahead, God, I'm waiting. Make me different. No, there's a balance. Paul says so also in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. That's a fascinating verse. On the one hand, you work. On the other hand, God is at work within you even to make you want to work. Do you see that? It's what theologians call synergism, working together, cooperating uh, together. That's how you grow and change as a Christian, working together with God. You can't be totally passive and you can't be totally active. If you look entirely to yourself, it doesn't work. If you look entirely to God, it usually doesn't work either. You need all three. Take off the old, put on the new. We do that with all diligence, with much effort, and then we, we humbly ask God, help us. Renew us as we take in your truths. Change us by your grace. Finally, that phrase in verse 23, the spirit of your mind, the spirit of the mind, being renewed in the spirit of the mind, that's an unusual phrase. And there's something, there's some interesting commentary actually about that phrase. 
Some suggest that when Paul uses that phrase, the spirit of your mind, he's referring to something like uh, our imaginations. And if that's true, then to be renewed, renewed in the spirit of the mind, it means to be captured and captivated by something. It means to have your imagination captured, to be caught up in something. And what is that something? What could that something be? I think we see it in verses 20 to 21 as we move to our third and final point, a life of learning the person of Christ. Now, after telling the Ephesians earlier in uh, verses 17 to 19, don't live like you used to, he said. That was your old self, he says. Paul says in the next verse, verse 20, that is not how you came to know Christ. He says that's not how you came to know him. And that's actually a tough phrase for the translators, that verse 20. So I'd like to give you a more literal translation of it because I think it gives us a more uh, robust and a more accurate sense of what Paul is getting after here. In verse 20, Paul says more literally, this is, that is not how you, how you learned Christ. And if we read it that way, which many, many Greek scholars say we should, here is another one of those interesting word choices from Paul. Because that Greek word that Paul uses there, it's a verb that was always used in reference to an object, right? To learn a book or to, to learn a body of truth. But nobody ever in any literature of ancient antiquity was ever told to, to learn a, a person. But that's what Paul says. He says, you learned Christ. You learned him. Then he says, you heard him. I know it says uh, you heard about him on the screen right now, but I can tell you with certainty that in the Greek, that preposition about is, is simply not there. So these verses literally say you learned Christ and you heard Christ. Now Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me. The voice of Jesus is the power that breaks through all the futility all the hardness and darkness and ignorance and awakens you from, from emptiness to fullness, from pointlessness to purpose, from, from death to life. You learned Jesus. You heard Jesus. Third, you were taught by Jesus. These are remarkable expressions. They evoke the image of a school, a school where Jesus is the teacher but he's not only the teacher, he's the subject and the substance of his own teaching. And finally, Paul says that Jesus himself is the truth. Paul says the truth is in Jesus. And that's actually the first time in this entire letter to the Ephesians that Paul changes our Lord's title from Christ to the more personal, to the more historical name of Jesus, and this is quite deliberate by Paul, I think, because the historical person of Jesus is himself the, the embodiment of, of truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I am the truth, he says. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says, you will know the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, the truth is not so much found in a doctrine or a philosophy or a worldview or a set of ethics. The truth is found in a person. 
We follow a person. We hear from a person. We are taught by a person. We have been set free by a person, and his name is Jesus. Have you heard his voice? If you haven't, I hope you're hearing it today, and I hope you'll respond to him today in faith. And do you remember in verse 24 earlier what Paul said about the new self, the new identity that's been given to us? He said your new identity, your new self is being created by God. It's being created by God according to God's likeness in the purity of truth. We're being created according to his likeness, Jesus' likeness. We're being created according to the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. This is saying that Jesus is not only our teacher, he is not only the subject, he is our example as well, and he's also what we are becoming and who we are becoming. One of the biggest problems in the world today is that in so many different fields, in sociology, in psychology, in in politics, and many others too, nobody can agree on what a human being should look like. Everybody wants to change human beings, but they... Uh, but, but change them into what? Everybody has an opinion, but nobody agrees. Science and psychology and secularism can tell you a lot of things about human beings and about human uh, behavior, but they, they can't tell you what a human being should actually look like. Only Christianity in any coherent way can say, I know exactly what a human being should look like, and they should look like Jesus He's not only the teacher and the subject and the truth. He's our example and he's he's our future. When I read about Jesus, now I know what I ought to be like and what you ought to be like. Now I know what true humanity is. When I see how he treats people, when I see how he relates to people, when I see the beauty of his character, now I know that's what we're changing into. That's where we're going. It's a process to be sure. But in the end, in the end, we're told in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that what we will be has not yet been revealed, but, but we know that when he appears, referring to Jesus, we will, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be like him, the Apostle Paul says. That's our future And that should fuel our present. Let me close by giving you a description of what Jesus looked like when he lived on this earth. And let's be praying for one another and for our church that God would be renewing us and growing us and changing us to to make us more like Jesus in these sorts of ways. Listen to this quote. Jesus lived in tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, holiness and unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice, the harshest judgment on the self-satisfied and self-righteous, yet the most winsome kindness to the broken and the marginal, never inconsistent, never a false step, never a jarring moment. This is life at the highest. Let's pray.